Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen continues her eight-part series exploring the roots and history of attachment theory with the conclusion of her two-part discussion with journalist and author Deborah Bloom on her book, Love on Goon Park, about Harry Harlow. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you from Shadok for another episode. And guys and gals, I really have someone exciting I am going to be interviewing today. I know I say this every time, but I mean, this is just just really, really a wonderful opportunity. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about who my guest is going to be for today. I am going to be talking with Deborah Blum, who is the author of Love at Goon Park, among many other books. Um, and she is a Pulitzer Prize winning science writer. She won the Pulitzer Prize for her writing about monkeys for one of her books that she wrote before Love at Goon Park, which was called Monkey Wars. And I want to just tell you a little bit about her background before she joins us. Uh, she traveled around the world and grew up with parents who were scientists and had originally thought she wanted to be a scientist herself. And in 1972, she started college at Florida State University, thinking she would be a chemistry major. She loves chemistry, is still fascinated by chemistry, but by her own admission, she says that she discovered that a laboratory is no place for an absent-minded klutz. She decided to change majors the day she set her braid on fire in a Bunsen burner in her lab instructor said, do you smell smoke? So she then transferred to the University of Georgia and graduated in 1976 with a major in journalism, a double minor in political science and anthropology. She worked for various different newspapers um, in Georgia, including the Times. Um, she eventually uh, headed to University of Wisconsin to study science writing and journalism and to continue her uh, education. Then after graduating from there, she became a science writer for McClatchy newspapers in California. Uh, she's just done so many things. I mean, she has gone to Alaska to write about glaciers, um, gone to Hawaii, um, and, and, and done different uh, writing um, about things there. She also has written a book called Sex on the Brain that was published in 1997, in addition to the books that I have already mentioned. She later went on the, the book Love at Goon Park, which I mentioned a second ago, came out in 2000. Too. And she's also written um, Ghost Hunters, The Search for Scientific Proof of Life After Death. That came out in 2006. She wrote The Poisoner's Handbook. She also has more recently written a new book about poisonous food and food politics that came out in 2018 by Penguin Press. 
This woman has just written a tremendous amount of fascinating science literature. And so I am just thrilled to have her on the podcast today. And when she gets on, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about our first meeting of each other. So stay tuned. So hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast with my continuing interview with Deborah Blum about the life of Harry Harlow and and what she writes about in her amazing book, Love at Goon Park. So Deborah, I'm excited to continue this discussion. I'm delighted to be back. <laughs> yes. So, you know, last time we were we were beginning to touch on um, really how revolutionary Harlow's ideas were. You were saying, you know, isn't it kind of a duh? You know, the child's parent, the child's mother matters. Um, and, at, you know, in the early 20th century, that was not the case. Uh, and I would love if you could share a little bit, and I have things marked in the book, but I, I can let you also talk, you know, the predominant thinking by leading psychologists then and by Holt and Watson and um, what different people were saying about how to raise children. So people really get the context of how revolutionary <laughs> Harlow was. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite of the Watson line, I think, I think it was Watson, uh, you know, was the overkissed child. <laughs> but they, <clears throat> he and Luther Holt um, and, and and Clark Hall would be been another example. You know, the people who were really trying. I think uh, so. So there's sort of two sort of parallel lines of thought that come together to yes. create this insane moment. One is, you know, on the side of medical science, uh, you, there certainly was an awareness that you, germs were a problem and a belief that. Yes. Um, you know, any human being was a walking cloud of evil pathogenic, you know, microbes. And so one of the best ways to take care of everyone was to, you know, eliminate as much human contact as possible. And so you saw, for instance, in children's wards that your parents couldn't visit. And there was even periods where you know, they wouldn't even let the nurses pick up the children. You might infect them. And so they iso in those wards, they isolated people more and more. And this was this ideal of preventing infection. And you can understand it, especially, um, you know, in a time before we really got into the antibiotic area. Mm -hmm. era, right? So, so you have all these doctors saying this and they're buttressed on the psychology side by people like John Watson, but, by, but also Luther Holt saying, and, you know, and actually this is good for the children because yes. too much touching ruins their moral fiber. And Watson himself said it only took a couple of days of cuddling to ruin your child forever, right? Yes. Don't pick up your child and don't hold them and don't spoil them and don't comfort them. And if, as soon as they're born, they have to toughen up and learn to be functional adults, right? And you, yes, and you share, I gotta share on page 37 in your book, you're talking about Watson and this was not an outlier guy. I mean, this guy was, you say, a South Carolina born psychologist and president of the APA. Watson is often remembered today as a scientist who led a professional 
crusade against the evils of affection. And here is one of the quotes that you have in the book. When you are tempted to pet your child, remember that mother love is a dangerous instrument. Yes. And they, and there was so much discussion in psychology of the time about the evils of mothers. Mothers, you know, suffocate their children. Mothers, right? There were even books about how mothers destroyed children by keeping them too close or spoiling them. And, and you start to see by the 1930s, I should back up and say many of these people, Luther Holt did and John Watson did, wrote best-selling books on childcare. Yes. And so you, and people adopted these practices. I, I, you know, one of the things that was interesting to me after Love at Goon Park came out, when I would go out on book tour, is the number of people who would come up and tell me stories from their childhood or tell me stories. I mean, just some incredible stories. But one of the consistent themes, especially from people who had been kids in this period of the 20s and 30s, is that their parents would not pick them up. And I, you know, had uh, one woman tell me it was what she was talking about her grandmother, that her grandmother had told her that, uh, you know, when she, she would try to get out of bed to, when she heard her children crying in the night and her husband would physically hold her in the bed so she couldn't do it and ruin their children. Right. Yeah. So you started to see by the 1930s pediatricians saying, I can't get mothers to hold their kids. They're too afraid of ruining them. I mean, this is having a really profound effect. Now, I mean, you hope that, you know, common sense also weighs in and a lot of people, you know, more intuitively say, well, that's just nonsense. And Harlow himself, when he started revisiting this, he said, you know, psychology has to come to uh, catch up with common sense, right? Yes. That was another part of, I feel like when you talk about that blue collar personality or, or blue collar scientist, I mean, you know, those kind of statements make me think of that too. Yes, he had such a way with words, and you know, and he and he didn't mince them, right? If he thought someone was, it got him in trouble increasingly, but he didn't mess around if he thought you were wrong. And he had a, a real gift. I mean, he was very funny, right? Yeah, for a, a nice sarcastic edge, and his students would talk about that too. And, and, and I know you mentioned earlier, which kind of goes back to the complexity of the man. I mean, he was obsessed obsessive about the research. He often just lived at the lab. He was a chain smoker. There's wonderful stories about, you know, all the different fires he started. (laughs) (laughs) He he was an alcoholic, a serious alcoholic, right? Um, And he was not, uh, you know, so he wasn't a wonderful dad. He just wasn't there. And he uh, wasn't uh, entirely faithful, right, Um, to either of his wives. Um, And I actually, and I'll say this about journalists, people don't appreciate this entirely, but journalists are actually very good secret keepers. So, you know, you you use the information, it's sort of what you think of as facts and service of story that you think is important to tell the story. So in the course of doing the research, I actually met a number of people who Harry Harlow had had affairs with, and none of them are in the book. 
you know, I wasn't going to do that. I, it was enough for me to say, because I knew it was true, that he wasn't entirely faithful, but there was no need for me to put those people on display, right? Yes. And so, you know, when, you, when you're researching a book, I think you also have to make those ethical and moral judgments about how much of a person you're willing to expose, I, I want to say. But, yeah. so, but Harry was, you know, just incredibly complicated, fascinating, unlikely crusader for love. And yet, for, for a number of reasons, because he did have, in both his marriages, despite my saying he wasn't you know, faithful um, entirely. He mostly was, I guess you could say, and uh, and he and those relationships really mattered to him and sustained them. So he also got at a very fundamental level the importance of you know the relationships that are uh, most important or the people you're most close to in your life. And a lot of times he would take that kind of personal insight into the way he looked at the relationship. So you see him starting with these really beautiful, precise looks in the importance of touch. And yes. then you see him going further. Well, is touch enough? You know, if your mother is always available to hug you, but never available to nudge you out to play with others, say, yes. right? Do you yes. develop normally if your mother, you know, is a, a static cloth mother, but she doesn't, you know, interact with you in any way that just stimulates sort of normal nervous yes. system development. Then you see him building and building and building on this. And then he goes further. What 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 if you, you know, your mother is completely inadequate, right? Uh, can you repair that with other relationships? There's some wonderful period of his work in which he, he's looking at the way we build other families when our own family lets us down and the and you know the therapeutic effects of that. And then he also looked at, and this was actually part of, but not entirely why he became so controversial, I think. What if your mother just rejects you? Um, and and I want to talk, if you don't mind, about that for a minute because yes, it's please do. such an interesting effect. So they they took this wonderful, always accepting cloth mother. I mean, she didn't do anything, but you know, she was always available for a hug, right? Um, and uh, and you know, a lot of they had set them up um, comparing a cloth mother and a wire mother. They had, and, and that's what they called them. You know, they were these. Um, device, these little structures with faces, one of which was warm and soft and cuddly and one of which was wire, one of which had food in the original experiment. The wire moms were the ones that had the food and they were able to show that, you know, the baby mother's just never attached to this cold, hard, unnurturing, uncuddly mom, you know, they attached to the one who cuddled. And they went from that into all of these other more complicated questions. And then eventually they went into, but what if your mother just actually physically rejected you as mothers do, monkey mothers do and, and human mothers do. Um, and so they built what Harry called the monster mothers, which were, you know, sort of variations on cloth mom, except that they were built to reject. There was one that was spring loaded and then just would throw the baby off. And there was one that was, um, had spikes, blunt tip spikes embedded in, in it. And when the baby monkey would come to cling, the spikes would shoot out. Right. And there was one that, um, 
trick the baby, like, you know, similar to what you sometimes see, although not as severe as in shaken baby syndrome. Yes. Um, and so what happens when that happens? And, and, and what's, and the reason I wanted to mention it and why I found that those, those are horrifying experiments. I mean, some of his experiments were much darker than that, I think, but um, those were, you know, to many people really horrifying experiments, but what they had expected to produce was psychosis, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if you're raised by a rejecting mother, you, you develop mental illness, but that really wasn't what happened. What they found was that the baby mother, the, the babies became fixed on making mom love them, right? And they would abandon all their other relationships, their friendships and everything, and just try to fix the first most important relationship. And they would stroke the rejecting mom and cuddle and coo. And it's heartbreaking in its description, right? Mm -hmm. Because they needed that foundational relationship. And again, when I went out and talked about the book afterwards, one of the talks I gave at a bookstore, um, a woman came up to me later and she was a nurse um, in a hospital that dealt with adult survivors of abuse and rejection um, and tried to help them cope. And she said, you know, you're describing my patients because they're 30 years old and they're 40 years old and they're 50 years old and they're still trying to fix that first relationship. So what was so profound about that was not just that, you know, it was the beginning of some of the experiments that Harlow did that for many people started crossing ethical lines, but that it, um, was so valuable in dealing with children who did have abusive or neglectful moms, right? Because the clinical, it became hugely important in clinical psychology because it led to this sort of foundational understanding uh, of the fact that the uh, abandonment by the parent of this first most important relationship would cause the child to spend so much of the energy of the rest of their lives trying to fix it. And that I think was a unexpected and hugely important insight. Yeah, and I think, you know, this this brings about the intersection of Bowlby's work with <laughs> what he was trying to say that this first early relationship is a template for, for others, you know, and when he talked about the internal working model and how that goes and the importance of it, and more importantly, directly related to Harry Harlow, that one of the biggest things that Harlow's experiment showed, is not just about who feeds the, the child or the monkey in this case, and um, that the cloth mother and someone to cuddle with was more important than, you know, yeah someone to give the primate food, um, which was completely going against what Freud and everyone in the British psychoanalytic community was saying to Bowlby. I, I think, you know, you mentioned in your book, and I'm eager for you to talk more about this, but I just want to say, um, you say in your book, um, Bowlby promptly began citing Harry's work. He would say later that the two research projects that began to make people take him seriously, that eventually eased him back into the British Psychiatric Association, was the stunning work of Mary Ainsworth and the inarguable findings of Harry Harlow's lab. And the no, so 
Bowlby's ideas at the time were clearly rejected. Yes. And I don't know that attachment theory would have moved forward without Ainsworth and Harlow. I don't either. And, you know, there's a section in the book where I really looked at the fact that Bowlby, even though he was absolutely right and putting forward these foundational ideas, was so rejected as to almost be start becoming invisible in the British psychological community, right? Um, and and the one of the most important aspects of that Ainsworth Harlow kind of parallel there is that they both in different ways did a series of experiments that reinforced each other. And I'm thinking of it's the strange situation work. Yes. Right. And, and what Harry and his students called the open field work. Yes. The, the, the way that your, the, your security, your sense of security and, and, the solid foundation of affection that gives you the courage to go out into the world and explore, right? Yeah. And that was profoundly visible in Ainsworth's work with children. And it was this, exactly the same with these racist monkeys, right? That the monkeys that had, you know, a, a mom who would hold them in their, right? Yes. were the ones who felt most secure going out and confronting, you know, weird, new, strange toys and other things that the psychologists would show at them. And at the same time, in Ainsworth's work, you see that the children who don't have secure attachments, right, they're not even really reassured when their mother does show up, right? Right. And that is also true in Harler's work. So you see this kind of, you know, detailed data-driven reinforcement, and that does allow Bowlby, and not that he didn't do his own brilliant work. I mean, you have to give him credit for what he did too, right? Of I like feel that. But but that but that kind of underpinning of solid science from, yes. from two different directions starts making what he says more inarguable, right? Yes. Yes. And, um, you know, we would be also remiss if we didn't also mention that, that you outline in the book too, in terms of other contributing factors here, um, what was being seen in orphanage care and mm -hmm. what was being seen when children were moved um, during the, the blitz um, of London and World War II into the countryside away from their caregivers. So, and, and the, the effect that, that this was, was having on children um, that they were being removed from people they knew. And, and th this whole idea, both in the orphanages and in, in moving children to the countryside during the war from London, that they were with people they knew, or they were with people that were, you know, meeting their basic needs, but really serious problems developed. Even as so far as you talk about, um, there was this really chilling sentence you wrote about the orphanages. Orphanages were baby killers. Yes. And they were. And, you know, and as you start drilling into that area of research, you see these really profound, some very good science outlining that and these incredibly profound effects. So I actually, as, when I was working on the book and, uh, and I described both of these films in different ways, I actually looked at two of the films by some of the early researchers in this area, Renee Spitz. Yes. 
Um, and uh, I want to say James Robertson, I think it is. That's right. <laughs> but, but Laura goes to the hospital. Yes. Um, but the Renee Spitz video, I, and, and this what makes me want to reference one other wonderful archive, which is the Archives of the History of American Psychology in Akron, Ohio, um, which is just an amazing place, right? I Just amazing. I, I mean, I left there. I was kind of cross-referencing Harry. His work wasn't there, but a lot of people he worked with had their papers there. So you went there for your research on this book. I did. I mean, speaking of, you know, I used to say to people, I went to Akron, Ohio, to the Archives of the History of American Psychology, and I went to Fairfield, Iowa, which is where Harry was born, and went through all of the Harlow records that his family had donated to the public library there and um, took tours. You know, I had someone take me where his house was and everything. Uh, and I had my kids on the Fairfield trip. That was their Easter vacation. Oh, my God. See, <laughs> somebody else thought of going on a vacation I was thinking that when you were mentioning that you know vacation to Madison because I hauled my whole family to Fairfield Iowa so I could do that and my kids I mean to be fair to me we then went over to the Amana colony but and then we had an Easter egg hunt in the yard of the bed and breakfast we stayed at in that area but but my kids actually, you know, we're going around uh, Fairfield, Iowa for several days, and uh, I actually got a, a tour into their little um, county history museum because I was researching the Harlow family. And, and you mean my kids were like there on the county? <laughs> I love it. Right? It's, I'm lucky they didn't turn out completely traumatized by all the different places. Oh, no. So, so Deborah, how many years of research did you put into this book? Well, you know, from I was, I'm going to say two to three, right? Yeah. And, and that's a pretty, I mean, people do more, but for, uh, I'm a trade, what they call a trade book writer, which is, you know, I started the book when I had the contract and I had a deadline and then I was late, right? So, <laughs> so probably about two and a half years of research and writing, right? And I, well, while I was at the University of Wisconsin, I, I was fun, I had this endowed chair, uh, and you'll get this perfectly in academia. So when I was at the University of Wisconsin, I was the Helen Firstbrook Franklin Professor of Journalism. I had an endowed chair, and I funded a lot of grad students. Um, and then when I came to MIT, I have, I have a staff position. So many people who are professors are like, you did what? <laughs> 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 but, but this was a good job for where I was at this yes. but um but I had some wonderful student researchers too so in the same period you know I would give them lists of you know areas to research or lists of people and I took a grad student with me when I went to the archives in Akron so so that we could spend you know essentially two person man hours yes Right. So I, I mean, it was a ton of research, right? Yes. Uh, but, you know, I'm like, like I said, I'm really anal about this. And, you know, Harlow gets into controversial territory um, and you want to get it right. Yes. You don't want to 
you know, write a book that it's going to explore some really complicated emotional and ethical issues and have it fall on its face because you got something wrong. And I'm the kind of person, and I know Helen Leroy, his assistant, will remember that. I was forever calling her up and saying, what color was someone's eyes? Because, you know, that's actually something that I tend to get wrong. I'm always thinking people's eyes are a different color than they are. Right. So I was always fact checking myself on yes. details. Yeah. So there was a ton of research and, and, and I'm proud of that. Right. The story holds up because the story it is. Shows. Right. I yeah. mean, that time that you put into that and how meticulous you are, it's just so rich and such a wonderful combination of science and the narrative of the life of this man. And that, putting bringing both of those together makes it so readable and engaging and enthralling it's just wonderful i really appreciate it and, and i'm excited to be on your podcast oh thank you you know such an important area so. yeah i was thinking you know as i was uh uh, this this one final quote, and it just seems so basic from the book, um, a quote from Harlow, uh, but it, it just seems like a, a, a good, you know, ending point um, where you had that he wrote, everyone needs a solid foundation of affection. And I quote that to this day, right? I, I, it's a hundred million percent true, but everyone needs that. And, and, you know, and it's sad that people don't get it. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, I wrote that quote down in my notes for the interview today. And then I thought, Oh, we have the decade of the nineties and all this information about brain and touch research. And, and so, um, and, and, and I wrote down understanding the understanding of the importance of touch, love, and affection has changed so much. And then I wrote, or has it? Huh. <laughs> and it, you know, and it both has and hasn't in the way science moves forward. I mean, we yes. have, right? So right. much of a better understanding of some of the chemistry of this and, and, and the way and why touch matters, the biology, right? Yes. So much smarter about so much of this, but the solid core of it is that that solid foundation, right? Yes. It, it, and touch is part of that foundation and comfort is part of that foundation and talking to your kids and interacting with them is part of that foundation. Yeah. You know, and I will say to people, the thing I like about Harlow, it goes back to what you raised earlier, which I thought was so important, you know, is that he's interested in love in every day, your everyday life. Yes. Right. And, and I know I'll sound sort of soapboxy here when I say that, but in fact, part of a, a successful and happy everyday life is this foundation, right? Yes. And are these connections. Yeah. And, the, and the more we know about this, it actually doesn't make us think less of that. It makes it understand it more. We understand yeah. more sort of the biology and chemistry of it yeah. and maybe how better to respond to it and treat it. But none of that changes the core of this, right? Right, right. Well, it is a beautiful book and, you. um, 
you know, you tell, tell listeners anything else you want to share where your website is, um, your, you know, any of your more recent works, like tell them how to get more of your, your wonderful writing and, um, how we can find out about this potential film too. I should send all of my, uh, writer friends to you. This is like just a wonderful uh, uh, experience for a book author. So, um, and so I really appreciate it. Uh, you know, so I have continued as a narrative uh, science writer, someone specializing in the history of science and I've continued to be interested. And this I think is also one of the most important parts of the Harlow story. Um, I think it's important for us to remember Um, And especially at a a time like this one, I mean, probably it's always true, but it feels important, especially now that one person can actually make a difference that you you feel so overwhelmed by events, you know, as someone living, you know, as we all are now um, through a pandemic, which is isolating, right? Um, but with all of these different issues going on in the politics of our country and the world that you can just feel, it's, you know, you can have moments where you just feel completely downtrodden by all of it. I certainly do. And I think it's important to remember, and the Harry Harlow's of the world tell us this, and in the books I did later, uh, one is uh, uh, the science of... uh, the the tw- early tw- 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century group of scientists who tried to figure out if you could use science to prove life after death. Yes. Um, and then Ghost Hunters. And I was just on a podcast on net, not a podcast, but a film series on Netflix called Surviving Death, talking about oh, the issues. I've that. seen that series. I didn't know that you were on that. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Now I'm even more motivated to, to watch it. <laughs> well, I mean, I think I'm the most um, skeptical voice in that entire series, but but you know I, I think the ideas are interesting, and I and I am like I love interesting ideas. And then my last two books were more in the area of toxicology, uh, the Poisoner's Handbook, which is about two underpaid civil servants trying to figure out how to catch killers in the early 20th century, and the Poison Squad is my most recent book, and that's about a of chemist, uh, a USDA chemist in the late 19th and early 20th, who is trying to get the United States to recognize that it should get in the business of consumer protection and specifically uh, food safety, food and drink safety. But all of those are the same theme that started with the Harlow book, right? That one person can make a difference, can drive a conversation, can help change a paradigm, can help make us smarter. And, and that that person, and this is true of every single person I write about in these four books is not always an easy person, right? Because they're obsessive and driven and combative when they need to be and never that easy to live with, but they're focused on this idea that kind of shines like a light ahead of them that they keep pursuing. Right. Yes. And it's a reminder to all of us, right, that in, you know, in the way that we specialize, in the way that we pick, I, all of us have some causes, I think, right, to not give up on those causes, yeah. because we do make a difference. And, yeah. and that's actually one of my other favorite lessons from the Harry Harlow story is that this, you know, 
Iowa, you know, this kid who came from a very poor Iowa family, right, mm-hmm. was able to build this, you know, influential idea-driven career in psychology and actually help change things. Yes. And we should all hold on to that. I think that's really important. Beautiful. That is wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Yes. So, uh, well, everybody, if you haven't already read this book, you need to read this book and everyone needs to also read your other books. And thank you so much for your time today. It's just completely exceeded my expectations, which were so high because I was so excited to talk with you. (laughs) Well, it's been, you know, it's just been a pleasure. I think these ideas are so important and uh, and I'll be listening to your podcast. All right. Thank you so much and goodbye for now. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.